crept around you was thick like a paste. You weren't necessarily a city kid, but city enough that there were always lights on. The power shortages had bled the suburbs dry and the darkness was so absolute it felt like a physical, immovable object. Everyone was silent while you marched through the abandoned streets. Contrary to what the movies had prepared you for, there weren't abandoned cars in the street or charred out cars on the side of the road. Like you, folks out this way waited for things to get better. They kept just surviving, not doing anything drastic or wild, just keep going until things improved. And they never did. The salt spray in the distance hit your nose. You remember in the summer, if the wind blew the right way, you'd pick up the ocean breeze. The city was on an inlet, a former shipping port, but the sandy beaches had been left alone because they flooded quickly and foundations never held for very long. The beach belonged to the fishermen, and that's where you were headed. If you're not from old fishing communities, you'd think that fishing season ends in the winter, but it doesn't. The fishing season changes. Pollock and cod, if the cod hadn't been driven completely away by overfishing and climate change anyway, are still staples. You didn't know how to fish, but you grew up around the seasonal nature of the business and you picked up a few things. The other nice thing about being near the ocean is that folks don't realize how much is edible that comes out of the ocean. Your brother-in-law, he's a yuppie asshole, but he invested in some kelp farming business, so during Christmas he told you all about it. You couldn't identify any of the species, but a lot of plants that wash up on shore are actually edible and nutritious. And at this point, the fear of malnutrition was stronger than the fear of food poisoning. You keep walking for what seems like hours. You'd driven out to the beach plenty of times, not nearly as many times as you said you would when the summer was just starting to appear, but enough, and it never felt this long. The waves crashed in the distance. You couldn't be more than a half a mile at this point. The houses started getting close together. Shotgun ranches mixed with new construction on massive beams 15 feet above the ground. A mix of new money and second homes and dock workers. Every beach town was the same in the way it tried to commingle these two different groups. This group began to walk more slowly, and you heard a child being hushed as they drift in and out of sleep, and you stopped. Greg moved ahead, looking to find a house to crash for the night, or maybe the week, or maybe indefinitely. You don't know. Ten minutes passed. An hour. The kids began to get restless. The first inkling of the sun was beginning to pour over the crests of the waves, and you began to get nervous. Greg appeared in the distance. He had found a house, but we had to move quickly as the daylight crept in. The house was abandoned even before anything had happened. The bank must have been sitting on it to sell and, well, everything else happened. The water had been turned off, which was fine because it probably wouldn't be good anyway. It was an old ranch with a big deck on the back, probably a summer home whose owners had planned to renovate it eventually, when things got better. It had all the markers of a vacation home, the beige furniture, board games, the lack of personal stuff, no backpacks, school art, collections of laundry to go somewhere, and the empty bedrooms with just enough stuff to feel like home, but not enough to feel lived in. You know, all the stuff you got rid of when you got older and your parents refused to get rid of. This is where it went to die. 
You found a small twin bed and closed your eyes just for a second. Before you could think about the fact your world had changed, you were gone. Hey folks, thanks for coming back. This is Andy from the Poor Pearls Almanac, and today we're going to be digging into some primo content on fruit trees. What are they, why we care, and what they want. It kind of sounds like they're holding us hostage when I say that, but they're not. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts. At least I hope so, because then I don't know how you're listening to us. And you can find us on Patreon if you'd like to help us cover the cost of hosting the podcast. At this point, we don't offer any extras to folks donating. That seems to go against leftist mentality. Knowledge is for everyone. And if we get more money than we need, we'll be donating it to a good cause and keep y'all in the loop. While we do enjoy making this content, there's about 20 hours worth of work that goes into each episode, so any support we can get, we fully and wholeheartedly appreciate. Additionally, if you are using iTunes, please give us a review so more folks can find the podcast and hopefully join us on this journey. Lastly, we're on Instagram and Facebook if you want to follow us over there. And if this is your first episode, we highly recommend going back to the first episode and catching up since each episode springboards from the previous content. Depending on when this gets dropped, the last episode we had talked extensively about forest biomes or about small, gritty, and green. But if it is about forest biomes, we talked about how those correlate with soil community, forest health, and forest succession as well as community resiliency, and now we're going to transition from that towards something that folks would more traditionally think of as a function of prepping. Fruit trees. I know, it took us six or seven episodes to get there, but we did. We're finally on prepping. Most folks are familiar with fruit trees based on what they get at a big box store. They see an apple tree that says Granny Smith for 40 bucks. They buy it, plant it in the ground, wait a few years, get 10 apples and which ultimately get bugs in them and drop from the tree early and then the next year spray the ever-loving Jesus out of it because goddamn you've had this tree for five fucking years and you want to get one goddamn apple out of it and you get a decent haul but now you're like $200 into 20 pounds of apples and the tree eventually dies or gets cut down. It was a mess anyway. It's okay we've all been there. We are trained on how to take care of our plants by how we take care of our grasses. We don't do anything remotely normal when it comes to taking care of that, so how would we have the skills for fruit trees? Now, on the other side of things, some folks will have this apple from the store or the farmer's market or whatever and think, God damn, this is the best fucking apple I've ever had in my life. And they go and save the seeds. They think, I'm going to plant this seed and I'm going to have the best apples anyone has ever had and everyone is going to be jealous of my sweet apples. Unfortunately, fruit trees do not grow true from seed. This means that if you were to plant six seeds from a Honeycrisp apple and grew them into trees until they produced fruit, you'd get six completely different fruit and they may not look or taste anything like Honeycrisp. This is also true for pears and stone fruits. To preserve the unique qualities of the Honeycrisp or any cultivar, a fruit tree must be vegetatively propagated by grafting two parts together. The cultivar the top of the tree, which is a clone of the desired cultivar, for example, Honeycrisp, and the rootstock, the bottom of the tree, which consists of the root system. Now, what is a cultivar? The term cultivar is short for cultivated variety. 
Cultivars of fruit trees are vegetatively propagated. The root system and the above-ground portion are joined by grafting. The portion of the tree above the graft is called the scion. To produce the scion, portions of wood from an existing tree are used to create a new, genetically identical tree. For example, when you purchase a Honeycrisp apple, the top part came from the branch of another Honeycrisp tree, which came from another Honeycrisp tree, which goes all the way back to the original Honeycrisp tree. This ensures the apples produced on your tree will be the same as the Honeycrisp. At grocery stores and farmers markets, cultivars are commonly called varieties. A sport or strain is a subtype of a cultivar that differs from the original cultivar in a specific characteristic. Yet, this tree is similar to the parent cultivar in all other aspects. Sports boast characteristics like early maturity or enhanced color. So you might see a early Granny Smith apple tree or something like that. That would be considered a sport or a subtype. Some varieties have many strains. For example, approximately 250 strains of delicious have been described and cultivated. A common strain difference a new fruit grower should be familiar with is spur strains versus non-spur strains. Spur-type growth is more compact since fruit spurs and leaf buds are closer than those on non-spur trees. On spur trees, two-year-old wood will usually form buds rather than develop side shoots. As a general rule of thumb, spur strains of a given variety will result in trees only about 60% as large as the non-spur types of that variety. Every fruit type has its own specific disease challenges, and since something like 40% of the fruit trees grown on non-commercial properties are apples, they'll get a little more attention today. The additional benefit of apples is that they store really well, so if you're planning on storing food for prepping, they're a really great option. Apple scab is the biggest apple disease concern in the eastern United States. Many scab-resistant cultivars have recently been released as a result of breeding programs in the U.S. and elsewhere. They were developed primarily for resistance to apple scab, but some are also resistant to cedar apple rust, powdery mildew, and fire blight. Disease resistance does not mean total freedom from pesticides, since none of these cultivars are immune to insect damage or summer diseases like sooty blotch or fly speck. So, I know I just dumped a bunch of different diseases and issues on you without going through what they are. As a rule of thumb, you learn diseases as you deal with them. That's really the only way. If you look at 10 different types of rusts, you're not going to be able to tell the difference from powdery mildew, blight, any of those things. A lot of them look very similar. It's usually something like a scab or a black spot. Experience is your best educator here, and when you see something that doesn't look right on the fruit tree, you can look it up. It's good to have books and resources available for you as you go, and there are plenty of groups on Facebook and other pages where you can learn about these things and reach out to folks that have already dealt with it. Now, in my house, cider is a primary concern for apple use, both fresh and hard varieties. Hard cider apples have many characteristics that differ from fresh market cultivars. There are four categories of cider apples, bitter sharps, bitter sweets, sharps, and sweets. The different categories depend on the concentration of tannins and acids within the fruit, very similar to grapes for wine. Cider apples can be tart, tannic, or downright inedible in their natural form. While these characteristics would ruin grandma's apple pie, they provide the complexity and depth that makes world-class ciders. In general, the rule is that you would never make a cider from supermarket apples in the same way you would never make wine from supermarket grapes. While you might not think of cider as a great prepping food, 
Cider making allows you to create longevity for a product that otherwise would go bad. Further, it provides a safe, drinkable water alternative. Most of the apples in your local grocery store fall into the sweets category. When Americans think apple, they're probably thinking of sweets. The sheer availability and low cost of this fruit makes it ideal for providing the bulk of a cider's fermentable sugar and its apple-y aromas. When blending fruit for cider, sweets can provide up to 50% of the juice for a batch and enough sugar to ferment a healthy 6 to 9% ABV cider. These common varieties include the ones you've probably seen on the shelves, Golden Delicious, Fuji, and Honeycrisp, among others. Personally, I've got Honeycrisp, Golden Delicious, and some other heirloom varieties growing currently, some of which I'll be using for cider next year. Sharps, in contrast, are the yang to a sweet apple's yin. With their pronounced puckering acidity, sharp apples provide tartness to cider. In some cases, sharps can be very juicy, but often they are heartier and mealier than sweet apples. Sharps can make anywhere from 25 to 33% of the cider's juice. The acidity in sharp apples serves two purposes for the cider maker. The obvious benefit is the tart character that, like in cooking, balances a cider's sweetness. The other benefit is that the acidity inhibits bacterial growth and helps to prevent spoilage. Combined with alcohol, acidity is the reason that cider can age in your cellar for years while apple juice cannot. The Granny Smith is America's ubiquitous sharp apple, and these apples are used by most large and medium-sized American producers as a source of acid. In fact, it is difficult to drink a cider from the Pacific Northwest that doesn't have at least some Granny Smith juice, but grannies are not the only sharp apple out there. Heirloom varieties such as the Rhode Island Greening and what I am currently growing, Colville Blanc, are both great options for cider making and apple cider vinegar. These sharp apples provide a depth far beyond the Granny Smith and are worth seeking out if you are a fan of sharp apples. If there is one style of apple prized above all others by American cider makers, it's the bittersweet apple, affectionately referred to as a spitter. These apples are low in acid, high in tannin, and impart the classic flavor of the finer French and English ciders. At first bite, most would consider bittersweet fruit inedible, but what is ill-suited for the fruit bowl is ideal for the cider press. Tannins can provide a drying effect or make your teeth feel fuzzy. Steep a cup of black tea for 10 minutes and take a sip. Feel it dry out your mouth a bit. Is the texture scratchy? You're feeling the tannins. That's also pretty much the same flavor you get from bittersweet apples. They taste disgusting. Chances are, you'll have never heard of any bittersweet apple varieties unless you're really into ciders, because they won't be found on any supermarket shelves. Michelin, Dabonet, Brown Snout, and Balmer's Norman are some of the more common varietals available if you want to order some trees online. I've got Michelin growing, not because I know anything about this variety in particular, but it was the one I could get my hands on. So at this point, you're probably thinking, what the hell did I just sign up to listen to? But we're getting there, I promise. We'll be talking about some other things shortly. It's not just about surviving, but enjoying the things that we're creating. So while some apples are undesirable at the dinner table, bitter sharp fruit, that small subsection of apples high in both acidity and tannins, are a prize for cider makers. They're pretty much the only cider apples that contain all of the necessary components of cider sugar, acidity, and tannins. These apple varieties have been a staple of British cider making since the 17th century and now have found favor with cider makers in the U.S. Many of the trees we refer to as crab apple trees are really bitter sharps. 
There's a reason why they planted them all over the place 150 years ago. It wasn't because they wanted to create a mess in your backyard. American cider makers look to the old world to find ideal varieties to plant. If you're interested in making your own cider, I highly recommend starting here. Start digging into crabapple varieties that can handle your local climate. I currently have a Whitney crabapple for this sole purpose. Now, let's get back to that fruit tree management discussion. It's important to start thinking about the bigger picture questions. Like what we just discussed, what do you intend to use the fruit for? Some varieties taste great for eating fresh, while other cultivars are particularly good for baking. Or, some have unique flavor profiles for things like cider. Can the cultivars tolerate your region's climate, soil, and humidity? Some cultivars are more disease-resistant than others. This may be important, for example, if your site is surrounded by abandoned apple trees that may be harboring diseases. Cultivars vary in bloom timing. Many cultivars will not set a good fruit crop unless they are pollinated by a different cultivar. So, you'll need to match cultivars so that their flowering times overlap. Cultivars also vary in their harvest date. Peaches can be picked from July up until early October. So that means their varieties, different flowering cycles can vary that much as well. Depending on your property size, you'll want to think about how to maximize your harvest season for your fruits and incorporate the longest storing options, as well as making sure that the blooms for your pollinators line up. Lastly, keep in mind what the fruits are for. It seems like a complicated web to narrow down your fruit tree search, so first I'll recommend creating a spreadsheet with each tree you want. The bloom dates by month, harvest dates by month, storage time, and what uses the tree have. When you create a list of, say, 15 to 20 trees, you'll see where they start to overlap and be able to pare down your options. I currently personally have 10 apple trees on my property, almost all of which are heirloom, which lets me harvest from August to late October, and proper storage will let me eat them all the way to April. My primary focuses are on sweet fruit trees, two for pies and desserts, and then a few that we are using primarily for ciders. While 10 trees may seem like a lot, there are mixes of dwarfs and trees that will be pruned to stay dwarf-sized. These are trees that will stay under 10 feet tall and 10 feet wide. What that means is that in an area that is 40 feet wide by 20 feet deep, I'm able to have 10 fruit trees producing over 1,000 pounds of fruit that is edible over the course of nearly 9 months. Further, the space below is covered in cover crops for my chickens and ducks, who have the added benefit of eating the rotted fruit that falls to the ground and returning nutrients to the soil and using water management methods of swales, I spent almost no time watering or maintaining the trees outside of the occasional pest management and pruning. By paring down our understanding of what we want and how we get there, we're able to make a concise plan that benefits us and maximizes the production of a short space. You can suddenly see, if you break it up over the course of nine months and multiple uses, you're able to get cider, vinegar, desserts, fruit, and all of these other uses that you otherwise might not think of. And this brings me to the point that it's important to also keep in mind how much fruit your fruit trees will push out. A typical dwarf apple tree will produce at full maturity around 200 pounds of fruit, while a semi-dwarf will pump out up to 400 pounds of fruit, and a standard tree can produce easily over 400 pounds of fruit if managed properly. If you're planting, say, 10 standard apple trees because you need both pollinators and a few different varieties for specific uses, or because you just enjoy them, it's important to think about what that really means in terms of what you're going to do with all of that production. Additionally, it's important to tie in various fruit trees, pears, plums, peaches, nectarines, persimmons, pawpaws, mulberries, 
figs, cherries, quinces, and so on in order to not only provide diversity, but to extend harvesting seasons from July through November. Having this variety limits catastrophic loss from disease or bugs that could potentially wipe out all of one fruit variety. As climate change continues to ravage our seasons, it's more and more common for extra late frost to kill off the first blooms of the season and extra early winter frost to destroy the last crop of the year, so it pays to have some variety to cover your needs. I wanted to cover a couple specific nuances about each fruit that would be helpful in guiding what research you might want to do to expand your food forest or simply just start one. Let's start with pears. There are two types of pears, European and Asian. Asian pears aren't common in grocery stores, and European pears are not eaten ripe off the tree. You'll want to pick them when mature but not ripe and cold store them for a few weeks. European and Asian pears generally bloom at different times and fruit at different times, extending your season, but also keep in mind they can't really pollinate each other because of this difference. With peaches and nectarines, which actually fruit in the same family and share most traits, you'll generally hear them defined by freestone or clingstone. What they are referring to is the pit. They are stone fruits, meaning they have a large seed in each fruit, like a stone, and freestone and clingstone refer specifically to whether or not the fruit clings to that stone pit in the center of the fruit. You'll also hear that fruits referred to as yellow versus white-fleshed. Generally, white-fleshed are sweeter flavored, but yellow peaches and nectarines are able to store for a short period of time, whereas the white-fleshed aren't able to store for any meaningful period. Cherries are an often forgotten fruit when it comes to fruiting trees. Most folks know cherries as sweet or tart cherries, and that's a pretty good place to start. The general rule, as you're probably starting to realize, is the more sweet the fruit is, the less well it stores. And that applies to cherries too. Sweet cherries are a challenge to grow and are very susceptible to, well, everything, which is a large reason most folks try not to grow them. Much like pears, plums have both European and Asian varieties. Generally speaking, European plums are good for canning and dried fruits, while Asian varieties are the ones you'll eat fresh. And again, they won't bloom at the same time, so you'll need two of each variety, and they can't be the same cultivar. Plums are some of the earliest fruiting trees, so from a prepping perspective, despite needing quite a few trees, it's worth having them around. The last fruit I want to touch on quickly are persimmons, which have American and Asian varieties. Most persimmons are self-pollinating and are almost always the last fruit harvested. Some fruit will hang on to the tree until December, and that's in New England. For most folks, if you've eaten a persimmon, it has been an Asian variety as the breeding programs have developed fantastic cultivars that are seedless and offer complex, sweet flavor. American varieties generally happen to soften up to the point of mush to be edible and often harbor hard seeds. The only place you ever see persimmons if you want to try one before you decide to plant one are Asian supermarkets and occasionally at Trader Joe's in the late fall. Now, reversing back to the earlier part of the conversation about trees, folks generally don't grow trees from seeds since they won't be true to the variety of fruit that the seed it came from due to pollination. If we want to preserve the unique qualities of a cultivar, we have to propagate trees by grafting. As we talked about, the top of the tree is a clone of the desired cultivar called the scion. The bottom part of the tree consists of the root system, the rootstock. Some rootstocks reduce the size of the trees growing on them. We call these dwarfing rootstocks. Rootstocks can also provide many other horticultural benefits to the fruit grower, like disease resistance. 
As you plan your orchard, you will have some decisions to make as you weigh the pros and cons of various rootstocks. For instance, if your soil is heavy, you'll want to choose a rootstock that is better adapted to that soil type, even if it has some other traits that are less desirable than some other rootstocks available. A rootstock is a fruit tree variety that was specifically grown for its root system. Depending on how they're produced, rootstocks are known as either seedling rootstocks or clonal rootstocks. To grow seedling rootstocks, seeds from processing fruit, usually Red Delicious for apple, Bartlett for pear, Lavelle and Halford for peach, are planted and grown, and then a scion of a cultivar is grafted to the top to produce a new tree. There are also clonally propagated rootstocks. Similar to how apple cultivars like Honeycrisp and Fuji have been selected for high fruit quality, some rootstocks have been selected for various attributes including size control, cold hardiness, and disease resistance. To preserve these specific traits, these rootstocks are produced through vegetative propagation. If you look at a fruit tree, you can clearly see where the scion and rootstock were joined together. There will generally be a bulge at this area, which we refer to as the graft union. When we talk about rootstocks, it's important to know that there are only a few fruit trees that this is an option for, primarily apple, pear, peach, cherry, plum, and apricot. Starting with tree size regulation, other than making trees more accessible to folks with smaller pieces of land, why would size regulation be good for folks even with larger spaces? Obviously, smaller trees are easier to maintain, but they also allow more light and air through the canopy, reducing fungus and mold issues, and increasing the fruit quality. Additional light not only helps regulate those fungal issues, but also increases fruit size and allows for under-canopy crops such as berries and other perennials. If you are looking to keep smaller trees and there aren't dwarf cultivars, there are ways to manage your trees to treat them as dwarfs. The first and most obvious is training and trimming. There are a few basic rules when it comes to trimming trees. You want to trim suckers and in general with the goal of thinning your tree for air and light passage. Suckers are pretty easily identified. There are generally random branches that grow straight up and don't seem to match the natural pattern of your branching. Now when we try to trim down our trees in order to get better airflow and light flow, you try not to cut randomly on a branch but take it back to a node, the place where a leaf or another branch originates. However, it's not as simple as you might think to just go and chop up your tree, but the general rule is that the more horizontal a branch is, the more fruit will grow and fruit production takes energy away from tree growth. This is one reason why you want to cut suckers from your fruit trees. They generally grow directly vertical and suck away a lot of energy while also likely never carrying much fruit, if at all. Espalier trees, much like grapevines we see at vineyards, are a great way to manage and mitigate large growth in trees while also maximizing fruit production. This process involves usually using a line to tie branches to going horizontally, making the tree almost look like a fence picket. Further, by cutting off the main stem of the tree, you can redirect that energy outwards towards the branches, which, if they're being managed, will reduce tree growth vertically. Girdling is another option for managing your tree growth, but it does slightly reduce your fruit production. Girdling is cutting into the trunk of the tree enough to reduce nutrient and water flow in the tree, but not enough to kill the tree. I don't really recommend it, but it is something to be aware of. Site location can also be a significant factor when trying to manage tree growth. Choosing poor soil locations or cooler places in your fields, gullies tend to be cooler, but also are nutrient accumulators, as you might remember from the forest ecology episode, so each site must be assessed for this specific use. 
This is also where your knowledge of soil biology is crucial as you can target specific places for specific tree management practices. There are also chemicals that can be used to limit root growth, which in turn limits and slows plant growth entirely. I won't dig into that any deeper. Additionally, there's a traditional farming method still practiced in much of the West Coast called deficit irrigation, which is essentially limiting water intake as much as possible without damaging the plant to reduce its growth. Additionally, by trying to reduce nitrogen availability, which is tricky, but can be done using other nitrogen-demanding crops around fruit trees, helps reduce shoot growth. This can be hard not only because measurement when not using nutrients is more art than science, but the effect may reduce fruiting while keeping growth the same, or it may not be evident until the following year. In balancing all of these things, you're also trying to not kill the trees in the process. This concept brings me to a related area of between-tree competition, which is exactly what it sounds like, using other crops between your trees to introduce competition for the available nutrients. Between-tree competition is a form of orchard floor management, which is how we control what grows below and directly within the canopy of our fruit trees. While we may enjoy the vision of fruit trees rising up from a thick grass field, weeds and grass are often in direct competition for the same nutrients. However, if you're looking to manage your tree size by allowing some grass and weed growth going into the fall season, you can mitigate some growth of your trees. Whether or not your goal is to limit tree growth, it is ideal for the tree's health to control weed growth around young trees and four to six weeks after bloom. However, I want to circle back to the training methods really quickly, because these are by far the most impactful decisions you make to your fruit trees when it comes to fruit production and quality. Simply put, the natural growth habit of a fruit tree is not always in line with what we want to get out of the tree in our orchard. For example, unpruned apple trees may grow very tall, producing branches with very narrow branch angles that may grow as tall as the main trunk of the tree. This would make the tree lose its dominant leader, which will lead to a lot of vegetative growth with little fruit production. By understanding the growth habits of these trees, we can implement various horticultural techniques to train and shape the trees to produce high-quality fruit. The goal is to work with nature, not against it, and to guide it in a way that is beneficial for us. This brings us to branch morphology and growth habits. There are a few terms I want to clarify, otherwise it might get a little confusing as we talk about some of this stuff. The first term is leader, which refers to the trunk of the tree all the way to the upper point of the trunk. While I'm sure everyone knows what a branch or a limb is, you may not be familiar with shoots or laterals, which are the sections of growth off of the branches. The smaller branches off of branches are called shoots. Apples, sweet cherries, and pears all generally have one central trunk or leader, while peaches, tart cherries, and plums generally are shaped more like an open vase without a dominant leader. If you're looking at a branch, you'll have nodes, where leaves and other shoots erupt from, and internodes, space in between. When we had talked about plant identification, we kind of covered this a little bit. The last thing you'll have emerge from a node is spurs, which are spots where fruits are formed on apples, pears, and cherries. Not all trees produce spurs, but these three are most common. Now that we know what we are looking at as we consider how to train our fruit trees to maximize yield, let's talk about branch organization. We talked a few minutes ago about how more fruit produces on horizontal branches, but more specifically, at between 40 and 60 degrees is where we have the best match of growth and fruit production. 
Our goal is to help continue to grow our fruit trees while also helping provide fruit for us. Early on in growing fruit trees, it is recommended to remove flower buds in the spring to help the tree focus on growing larger, allowing for bigger harvests in the following years. Buds are often found in two places, at the end of a branch where they're called terminal buds, or in the sides of branches where they're called lateral buds. You can have vegetative buds and flowering buds. For our apple and pear trees, generally the lateral buds will be leaves, while the terminal buds formed on short, stocky shoots. These are the spurs we had talked about earlier. Fruit generally produces on two-year-old spurs for apple and pear trees, while fruit will produce on one-year-old spurs for peach trees. Cherries and plums, on the other hand, will produce fruit on both one- and two-year-old spurs. If you do have an apple tree or any other fruit tree, Knowing this kind of knowledge can give you a good sense of what kind of production you may have in the following year. And with that knowledge, you can plan what you want to do. Can, dehydrate, ferment, whatever method that you think is best for you in order to save your food. So with that, we understand how tree size is managed, the parts to fruit trees, how branches and shoots impact fruit production, and how fruit trees produce fruit. The final area of focus on fruit productivity is around light access for our tree. The general rule is that the higher the amount of light, the higher our fruit yield will be. So what we want to do is maximize our leaf area index, a term used to define the amount of leaf area in relation to the amount of ground area. To get the best benefit of our trees, we want to capture 60 to 70% of the sunlight hitting the ground with our trees. To get red fruit color on our apples, for example, the fruits need 70% exposure to sunlight. For good fruit size, we need at least 50% sunlight. For good flower development for the next year, we need at least 30%. With that basic knowledge, you can quickly analyze the quality of, say, an apple that you see at the store. When we think of maximizing our leaf area index, your first thought might be to let our tree get as large as possible because that would be increased exposure to sunlight. However, while the tops of the tree may get all that exposure, the middle and bottom of the tree would not, making the most delicious apples only available at the top of the tree. By keeping our trees smaller, we are able to limit the impacts of the leaves filtration of the harvest of the most accessible fruits at the bottom of the tree. Further, we are able to maximize our fruit tree production by orienting our fruit tree fields north to south, both maximizing sun exposure and limiting the extremes of sun exposure. With all this information, you might be thinking it makes the most sense to densely plant dwarf trees and trying to make their branches as lateral as possible to maximize fruit production while increasing light exposure. And this is a great way to set up a small collection of fruit trees, but it's worth mentioning a few things. Trees on dwarf rootstocks generally have shorter lifespans, less than 50 years, and if you're growing them in some kind of trained or heavily managed system, they do require more labor hours to manage them. If you're looking to get bigger trees with less management, it's also important to remember that means you'll likely have a lot of space for a number of years in between those trees that you could use for other crops, and fruit may not come for several years. For everyone, that planning decision is personal. There's a lot of folks out there who use asparagus and other perennials between tree rows to maximize production before fruit or nut trees are ready to be harvested or run various livestock through, which is also a great way to add biomass to the soil and is something I'm currently doing not because of excess unproductive space, but because I run a high-density regenerative farming model with extensive use of tree hay, which is something I'm super excited to talk about in a later episode. 
Now, if you're going the route of a low-maintenance, larger tree system, you'll want to grow your apples, pears, and persimmons in one of two ways. In what's called the three-tier system, your trees will want to have that central leader, that traditional trunk that you always imagine. Competing branches that try to grow vertically are either cut or trained downwards, and with that, the tree will make a Christmas tree-like shape. This shape maximizes light across and limits fruiting at the uppermost part of the tree, making fruit accessible for you and saving you a lot of headache. If you've ever tried growing a fruit tree, almost none have that shape naturally. To promote branching, heading, that is, cutting the central leader, is done every year, leading to extensive new branching. And since the lower branches start growing first, they'll be larger than the others. You'll eventually end up with three tiers. The very large, long, lower branches, the medium-sized branches in the middle, and the very short, stubby branches at the top. Your second option is using the French axe system, invented by, you guessed it, the French. If you've ever been apple picking in a newer orchard, and the trees run in tight rows with gaps about 5 to 15 feet, and their branches are guided to grow along the row, although not in a strict pattern as, say, a traditional espaliered system that like what we see with grapevines in a vineyard, then you've probably seen this before. Heavy branch trimming maintains the system in size and by using renewal cuts, which is cutting back branches to promote new growth and new fruiting spurs in order to maintain the tree size. Stone fruits, such as peaches and plums, are usually trained to an open center system. Some growers use a V system. In an open center system, the basic tree form consists of three to four main scaffolds, or primary branches that replace the main central leader. The scaffolds have secondary and tertiary branches that bear fruit on healthy one-year-old wood. By training this way, we focus on shaping the tree to minimize the shading of fruit shoots. The ultimate height of a peach tree is determined by the selection of the main scaffolds. When you plant them, you'll want to head your trees to 20 to 24 inches above the soil. Then, once the trees begin to fill their space, maintain a tree height of 8 to 10 feet tall by cutting back scaffold limbs. Now I can't really cover all the different fruit types here or the fruit type growing methods, but I want to give you a general taste of what this means to manage fruit trees, especially for folks that are coming from someplace where they've never had a fruit tree in their life. With that said, I wanted to hit the more popular things, but most fruit trees will follow either one of these or a modified version of one of these methods. Logistically speaking, if you're planting, say, 15 apple trees, one thing I would recommend is planting them according to their harvest date, and I say that for a few reasons. What I mean by that is planting multiple trees that may fruit in a specific time of year with other trees that may fruit in that same specific time of year, even if they're different species. The first reason this is beneficial is that by planting trees that harvest at the same time, they'll likely cross-pollinate if they're both, say, apple trees, and help maximize your yield. Even trees that are self-pollinating benefit from cross-pollination if possible. The second is that when harvesting, it'll be easier to keep track of which trees are ready to harvest. You'll go to one section of your property to harvest your apples, pears, and peaches that may come at the same time of year. Assuming that you're considering some type of food forest, you're likely going to be planting a lot of different things with different harvesting times. Whatever you can do to help organize this process will make your life a lot easier. I currently have around 75 fruit trees and a dozen nut trees on my property, and this is one of the areas that I organized my trees around, and it's worked pretty well. And at this point, I think we've gotten a pretty decent primer of what goes into the tree selection and tree training process of your fruit trees. 
We can start to narrow down the trees we want for each fruit, plan out our spacing for our trees, how we're going to train them, and what's the best process for harvesting and ultimately maximizing both our yield and duration of season to have fresh fruit. Additionally, we have an idea of how we can store that fruit in various ways based on the types of fruit cultivars that we choose. Like I said earlier, I can have fruit from my own very small orchard for nine months of the year with proper storage. My current fruit tree area that I was speaking of is 80 by 100 feet. It's not particularly large by any stretch of the imagination. I have apples, pears, peaches, plums, nectarines, persimmons, mulberries, pawpaws, fig trees, and quinces, and they are still increasing in yield every year. Further, by maximizing the light through the canopy, I'm able to grow berries and herbs in the understory using fruit tree guild systems, which we'll talk about in the next episodes, and my kids, chickens, ducks, and dog can run around in the space in between. Nothing is left to waste. I have another acre and some change to extend the system. I'm going to be continuing to add new fruits and varieties to add resilience through diversity and to produce more fruit and nuts for family, friends, and comrades. In methodically planning our small space, we can maximize the utility of our area by working with the tools that nature gives us while bringing our food closer to home. This creates resilience. Creating sustainable systems doesn't need to be high-tech, complex, or energy-intensive, but rather well-thought-out and organized by aligning our goals with nature. There's no reason all the fruit we eat can't be grown within our neighborhoods, or at least within a short radius. In 1900, when New York City had 3.4 million residents, almost all of the food eaten within the city limits was grown within the surrounding seven miles. It was done in the past, and we can do it again. We have better research, resources, and a new need to find ways to decentralize our food system and to create community-based resilient systems. There's no revolution without revolutionary action towards our food web. I'm not going to pretend the material in these info episodes isn't dense, The goal isn't that you listen to a 40-minute episode and now you're ready to go start a food forest. However, I think we touch on the basics, and if you haven't ever thought about this area of food security or prepping in the past, it's a really great opportunity to get some basic knowledge and at least know what these terms mean. Too many people do go out and buy fruit trees because they think they should grow fruit, and they see varieties, again, at Home Depot or Lowe's or wherever, and they say, oh yeah, I like that apple tree, that apple variety or whatever it might be. And at the end of the day, they don't have a clue what they're doing and the tree is doomed for failure. Hopefully, though, you feel like you've got your bearings on the subject matter now and you kind of know where to start. There are a lot more qualified people out there to give you more information on what you need to do to meet the goals you have and to deal with the conditions of your property that you're looking to plant on. So this is just a first step. As always, thank you for listening. In our next episode, we're going to dig in deeper on food production and how we can use the method of forest to mimic a good food system in structuring and layering on our property. Unfortunately, there's a bunch of pseudoscience around this subject area, and we're going to take the time to start parsing out that fact from fiction. Until then, this is Andy, and this is the Poor Pearls Almanac. <laughs> <laughs>